Section 22 of Charles II by Osmond Airy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 4. Charles, Louis, and Parliament. Part 1. Had Charles been asked to justify the deception which he had practiced upon his people, he would probably have answered that foreign alliances and questions of peace and war were prerogatives of the crown and no concern of theirs. That he was, as he had said, the only man in his dominions who was in the interest of France was a matter of regret, but could not be supposed in any way to affect his decision. If, therefore, he had reason to believe that his people would forsake their proper province and oppose his designs, should they become aware of them, secrecy and deception were, he would hold, at once legitimate and necessary. But in domestic affairs such deception had been impossible, and to illustrate this we must now briefly retrace our steps. The dismissal of Clarendon had removed an obstacle to the fulfilment of the king's purpose of resting his power upon the goodwill and gratitude of dissent. Buckingham and Arlington, the successors to Clarendon's place, though not to his authority, hating one another mortally, still pecking one at the other, were for a time united by their common antagonism to the fallen chancellor and their common fear that he might return. Their private inclinations, moreover, led them toward toleration. Buckingham posed as the patron of Protestant descent. Arlington sympathized with the Catholics. So long as the recess lasted, they had their way. The penal statutes were ignored. The prisons were opened. The meeting-houses were again thronged. The Presbyterians received ostentatious favor, and many old commonwealth men like Wildman showed themselves again in public. A bill for comprehension was drafted to which it was confidently hoped that Parliament, rendered tractable by the Triple Alliance and by its success over Clarendon, would give its consent. And the speech from the throne, February 10th, contained a request that the Commons would seriously think of some course to beget a better union and composure in the minds of my Protestant subjects in matters of religion. All mention of Catholics was carefully avoided. But Charles was at once undeceived. His intentions had leaked out before the houses met, and the country gentlemen, already angry at the mismanagement of the last war, were in a state of excessive irritation. The king was straightway petitioned to proclaim the suppression of all unlawful assemblies, whether papist or protestant. He knew that any hesitation would mean a refusal of supplies, and the short-lived hopes of the dissenters came to an end. The commons then threw aside the proposal that Charles should be asked to hold a conference of divines, and in May 1668 passed a bill for continuing the conventicle acts. There was clearly nothing to be done with the house in its present humour, and Charles wanted freedom for his negotiations with Louis. Taking advantage of a deadlock which had arisen between lords and commons, he postponed any further meeting of Parliament for nearly eighteen months, until October 19, 1669, when money was again absolutely necessary. 
had he been careful to maintain at least a moderate execution of former acts it is possible that the commons might have accepted some indulgence for protestant dissent as it was they came together possessed more than ever with the doctrine that an overwhelming and exclusive anglican ascendancy was the only weapon with which to fight their arch-enemy catholicism sheldon had collected ex parte information as to the character of the conventicles and even before the meeting of parliament had carried it to charles and compelled him to issue a fresh proclamation to enforce the law the commons at once made it clear that they would support the primate and on december eleventh sixteen sixty nine charles again closed the session when parliament reassembled on february fourteenth sixteen seventy an unusual scene was witnessed for the first time in english history the sovereign was attended to the house of lords with military pomp it can hardly be doubted that the design was to accustom the people to the idea of a standing army charles met the houses with confidence begotten by the dealings with louis which have been described and addressed them stilo menici et imperatorio he had another reason for this attitude in the interval between the sessions he had taken the lessons of the past to heart for once his speech did not contain a word about toleration he had cynically determined to offer to parliament the one condition necessary to secure an unstinted supply a supply which he intended to use for the objects most distasteful to the members the commons understood that they might have their swing of persecution and they showed their instant recognition of the fact by voting a supply of three hundred thousand pounds a year for eight years we are all venal cowards except some few was the bitter comment of an honest man charles then left them without demur to settle down to their favourite work on april eleventh sixteen seventy he gave his assent to the second and more pitiless conventicle act sheldon hounded on the bishops and so severely was the act executed that a trustworthy witness declared soon afterwards that there was scarcely a conventicle to be heard of throughout england we are told of violent arrests in churches even during sermon time nay of one taken out betwixt the bread and the cup in receiving the sacrament so successful was this policy that in marvel's words the king was never since his coming in nay all things considered no king since the conquest so absolutely powerful at home protestant dissent being now out of the way the commons attacked the other wing of the forces hostile to anglican supremacy on march tenth sixteen seventy one they made a series of demands which implied a denial of the right of catholics even to dwell in peace to the cry for the banishment of priests and jesuits and for the enforcement of the penal laws charles yielded at once with but slight reservations for this second surrender he received a farther supply and then taking advantage of a fresh conflict between the houses he again used the weapon of prorogation parliament did not meet again for business until february fourth sixteen seventy two before we deal with that session 
certain domestic matters claim attention which were of more absorbing interest in charles's eyes and one of which at any rate was of real political importance as well hitherto lady castlemaine's sway had been undisputed the ladies who were introduced to charles's casual notice by bab may chiffinch arlington and his other purveyors were but creatures of a day suddenly however she awoke to the fact that poor olinda was growing old and that she had two rivals whose appointment seemed likely to be permanent nelly gwynne then just nineteen years old was sent for by the king in the winter of sixteen sixty nine and remained his playmate to his death she had already been mistress successively to charles hart her fellow-actor and to charles lord buckhurst with whom she kept merry house at epsom but while lady castlemaine under the king's very eyes ranged from peer to rope-dancer in the bestowal of her favours nelly gwynne having reached the height of ambition was for all evidence to the contrary faithful to her charles the third as she dubbed him for more than fifteen years captivating in looks she must have been to attract the king although her portraits show none of that regular beauty which in lady castlemaine and francis stuart defies criticism but it was clearly the frank recklessness of the latin quarter the fearlessness of her banter her irrepressible gaiety the spontaneousness of her practical jokes her camaraderie and unfailing goodness of temper which made her hold on him secure she was a true child of the london streets apt of wit and shrewd of tongue and her very honesty of vice her want of reticence her buoyant indiscretion her refusal to take herself seriously or to regard herself as anything but what she was have strangely enough secured for her a sort of positive affection in the respectable england of to-day as they did during her joyous irresponsible life nobody ever thought of kissing nelly's hand as they kissed the hand of the mistress en titre her regular wages were comparatively insignificant a bare four thousand pounds a year while the duchess of portsmouth was receiving many times that amount for politics she cared nothing politicians might indeed meet and intrigue at her lodgings but nelly and her merry gang were not politicians and she neither made ministers nor appointed to bishoprics she was as we have said charles's playmate and his dying words don't let poor nelly starve aptly expressed the relations between them very different were the birth character ambitions and functions of louise rene de Carouaille de penoncoe the daughter of two noble breton houses who when just twenty years of age came in the train of henrietta of orleans to dover on the eve of his sister's departure when presenting her with some choice jewels charles prayed her to leave one of her own with him she bade louise fetch the casket and told her brother to make his choice charles thereupon asked with a smile that her maid of honour might remain in england for that was the only jewel which he coveted there is no reason to suppose that henrietta had brought the girl over for the purpose indeed she utterly refused charles's request 
but after her death louis who was constantly informed of all details of this nature in charles's court saw the opportunity thus afforded for supplying the place which had been left in his affections and for thereby securing that influence over him in french interests which the queen from ignorance and lady castlemaine from vulgarity were unable to exercise louise was instructed to accept the king's urgent invitation to return to england as maid of honour to the queen and was doubtless well aware of what that meant it will be seen how far she succeeded in the political role assigned to her but from the very first she began with the sweet languor of her girlish face and the refined charm of manner which was a new experience for charles to weave around him the meshes of the net and to introduce into the anarchy of the harem something at least of female reticence and grace alone among charles's mistresses she had a conception of la haute politique she alone in that ignoble court could command the respect and cooperation of statesmen and ambassadors she met the vulgar furies of lady castlemaine and the banter of nelly with quiet disdain she held her own with a certain dignity against the anger of the commons the hatred of the people the attacks of politicians and the waywardness of charles and for many years she was virtual queen of england a curious scene followed her arrival furious with jealousy lady castlemaine prepared for war nelly was boisterous in her defiance and the other ladies were proportionately aggressive louise adopted a behaviour of piquant reserve month after month she strengthened her hold upon charles by a gentle but effectual resistance to his importunities her progress was eagerly watched from france the ministers of louis began to fear that she was overacting her part and she received hints to that effect still she held out at length lady arlington was deputed by colbert to put the case plainly to the girl she must lay aside her scruples without delay or retire to a french convent at a dinner given by colbert to charles it was arranged that she should accompany lady arlington to euston where the king could join them from newmarket and that there the last resistance should be overcome the revels of that night the mock marriage and the rest are told by evelyn on october ninth sixteen seventy one she became charles's acknowledged mistress of all the strange scenes in this abandoned reign perhaps the strangest to modern eyes is the audience which she gave on november second to colbert who came to tender her the formal congratulations of louis the fourteenth her advancement was rapid countess baroness duchess in quick succession it is said that she even aspired to share charles's throne should the expected death of the queen take place barbara palmer nelly gwynne and louise de queroaille typify as they contented the three sides of charles's nature the first had held him by the purely animal passions the lustfulness of his southern blood nelly was a bohemian like himself and would have been as good a comrade had they both been strolling actors but when he wanted refinement charm of conversation and delicacy and it is a mistake to forget this side of his nature he retired to the apartments of louise de queroaille end 
of section 22.